Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. They say that it's all in the name. Well, for Rashid Dayal, Happy Marketer was more than just a name. This was a business he started when he was 20 years old during the final moments of university. And for 15 years, Rashid grew and ran Happy Marketer, staying ahead of the trends in digital marketing and, well, he was happy. The roots of this business started in 2005. Google was not a public company, Facebook didn't even exist. MySpace was at the height of its popularity and websites were being designed as brochures. This landscape gave Rashid prime opportunity to become an expert on this intriguing new company called Google. Three books later, when he returned to Singapore from the US, he was one of the country's first professionals in search ads, SEO, and Google optimizations, and his business acumen and successes grew from there. Ultimately, Happy Marketer grew to 10 million in annual sales. Rashid thought he'd been in business until he was 70, but after some poking and prodding by curious business partners, they began to explore acquisition opportunities, finally landing in the hot seat with Merkel, a holding company by Dentsu, who was looking to expand into Asia. This episode talks a lot about preparing, both emotionally and physically, for a business who never intended on exiting, and gives great insight into how approaching your business as a lifestyle business over a quick scale and exit can still amount to a successful next step. Plus, we get a few good book recommendations along the way. This is Rashid Dayal. Hello, Rashid. Welcome to the show. Hey, Simon. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to hear your story today and have a bit of a chat about your journey. Same here. I've loved hearing the, the, the previous episodes and, uh, you know, I'd l- glad to add to this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Ratchet, you know, I, I know we're going to get to, to chat about your your business, uh, which was Happy Marketer and, and I guess a transaction that you went through in selling that business. But maybe we could just kick off and perhaps you could just give it a little bit of your background and give the audience an idea of who you are and what, what led to that point in your life. Absolutely. Um, so the quick 30 second version is my name is Ratchet. I was born in India. And I moved at the age of 17 to Singapore for university. Um, And I stuck around uh, for a while there. I lived in the U.S. Um, And when I came back um, from the U.S. to finish my university here, I started this business called Happy Marketer. I was 20 or 21. And I ran that business for about 15 odd years and sold it uh, two and a half years ago um, to a group called Dentsu and a company within it called Merkel. And that's sort of the 30-second version of the life story. 
Yeah, fabulous. And so I've got to ask, whereabouts in India are you from? I was born in Delhi, grew up in Bangalore. But to be honest, I've lived in Singapore longer than anywhere else. Ah. Um, and for sure, if I go by media consumed, I've consumed more American media than anywhere. So I don't know where <laughs> I'm from exactly. You're a, uh, a child of the world. <laughs> But uh, my my father in law um, was born in India, and so I I always chuckle because he keeps you know in, just in conversations he'll say, well, in my culture and things like that, and I keep teasing him, saying, you've lived in Australia longer than you've lived ever, anywhere else, so technically my culture is your culture, um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're an Australian, so it's time to you know you know you got to update the accent and the uh, and the, the that whole line, so. Um, so, yeah, you know, I know the feeling because uh, <laughs> my wife is from Japan and, and that side of our family is in Japan. And so we run our ah. household like a Japanese family. And so we live in Singapore and, uh, you know, yes, I, I, I fall back on my Indian habits and my Indian accent. Uh, <laughs> but on a day to day basis, I wake up and I eat Japanese breakfast and we try to keep the house uh, like a Japanese house would. So uh, child of the world. Thank you. That's the nicest description I've heard. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and, you know, isn't it, I think it's a sign of the times anyway, right? I mean, not only is the uh, is there more movement from country to country, but, geez, the world is a much smaller place, isn't it? It is. And no matter where we are, I mean, as long as we've got that smartphone and the internet with us, there's <laughs> there's a lot of that being connected back to that global community. I'd, I'd actually like to break that habit a little bit. When we used to be able to travel, it was a little bit of a challenge putting that phone down and really enjoying, you know, the food and the air and and the things that are happening locally. But with the internet's also making us a little bit addicted to that global flow of information more so than local. Yeah, it can be a little bit invasive in the life, can't it? Well, uh, you know, I come from the marketing industry and we are right at the forefront of messing with people's <laughs> privacy. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and no doubt a little bit of psychology there to keep them, uh, keep them coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So, so tell us a little bit about Happy Marketer. Yeah. So Happy Marketer was born out of accident, I would say, as many businesses are. Um, I graduated from university and I started a business which was called Rachid Dayal Communications, and with a lot of energy and vigor, I tried to recruit employees and partners and clients, and nobody wants to work for that company. <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants to do business with the founder has his name on there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so in with sort of compulsion, went and found a name called uh, Happy Marketer. And a lot of that actually came from, I was into an area called neuro-linguistic programming. Fantastic. Um, it's yep. kind of hypnosis and pop psychology and that whole thing. So my real interest actually was to focus on happiness and meditation and life skills and kind of focus on the marketing community. And it just turned out that as I ran a couple of trainings and workshops, the questions in there were all about marketing. And I had the fortune of being sort of early in the game with being the first Google certified person in Singapore. So, you know, I said, okay, the questions are there. Um, I like this area of work. Hey, forget it. Who wants to get two couches and sit on them all day. I'll do marketing. And that's how Happy Marketer was born. Fantastic. And, um, you know, there's a couple of little interesting points in what you just said. Um, the first of which being, you know, you started a company and you put your name on the door, or maybe a virtual door. But, you know, that's it, it's an interesting concept when we talk about legacy in our own businesses, but also what, what kind of impact does that actually have on building brands? Um, you know, do, do you have, I mean, what's your view on all that sort of stuff? Yeah. I mean, I, I started my business inspired by 
you know, there was a guy named Ogilvy in my industry, in what was called the advertising industry. Yep. And uh, in the consulting world, there's a guy called McKinsey. And those folks left their name on the door. You know, yeah. they, they might, may or may not have owned that business by the time they passed away, but they definitely left their stamp and, you know, people followed in footsteps. So I started this business, you know, assuming I would die with the name on the door and just run it all my life. And I had uh, no dreams of sort of selling the business or making loads of money or whatever. It just felt like a, a passion project. Mm. Mm. It's, that's, and you make a really good point. I mean, you know, there's a couple of names there that we, we all know very, very well. It's, um, one of the things we've found with some of our clients is, um, you know, it's okay to have your name on the door, but geez, geez you better detach yourself from the, the, the business and the operations and everything else by the time you want to sell because that, that whole owner dependence aspect can, can weigh heavily on valuations and, um, as, and, and financial valuations in that respect, but can also weigh heavily on founders' emotional attachment to the business. Um, and their concern, I guess, in terms of how their name will be used after the fact. So, I mean, okay, you become a global giant like McKenzie. Great, you're you're fundamentally a global company now, anyway. And <laughs> but it's um but it is just an interesting thing, and I I think there'll be plenty of people listening to this who are business owners running smaller businesses, and um, you know perhaps are wondering how they tie their name to their business, or should they tie their name to their business like that? So it's yeah, yeah that's a it's a difficult decision. Uh, you know, maybe I'll quickly recap. In my journey, I ran that Rachid Dayal communications business for about four years. Um, and I really wanted a friend of mine to join as a business partner. And I could see from the look of his face that he would not enjoy working <laughs> for, for that business. And at that point, I had just had enough sort of five years of loneliness that I said, forget it, man. Like, if I need to sacrifice the name on the door to become a second or third name, uh, you know, as one of the partners, um, I'll do that. But I, yeah, I can't yeah. do this for 20 years alone. And so it was just loneliness. And, uh, you know, the first partner came on and that that trick of happy marketer is an intriguing name and the whole mission was sort of just to have a happy team and have fun doing what we do that attracted more partners and more employees. And so, you know, something just clicked at, at some point and I had to say, you know, this is working no matter what yeah. I wanted in the beginning. This is what really people want and it's fun to do this. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I just love it. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in culture and, and you know, you need to kind of put out there about who you are and what you believe. And, and we've all seen Simon Sinek, you know, like we're not, we're not trying to sell to everybody or, you know, bring on everybody as a partner. We just want people who kind of believe what we believe and that just makes the world a much easier place to be in. So, um, so yeah, I, I love that um, aspect to it. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit more? Can you drill into a little bit about the sort of marketing that Happy Marketer did? Yeah, so the roots of this business started in about two thousand and five, uh, and I, I, maybe some of the audience is too young to even remember what was happening. Then. <laughs> Google was not a public company then; there was no such thing as Facebook. Uh, MySpace was the big thing, and yeah. we used to build websites designed as sort of uh, brochures. Um, so that was the world in which this whole thing kind of started. And I was lucky enough when I worked in the US, Google was kind of an intriguing thing. So I bought a bunch of books off Amazon, uh, you know, three books later, I was an expert. And so everybody wanted my opinion on this thing. Uh, so when I came back to Singapore, I said, okay, I can, you know, probably do something fun with it. I, I like this area. And so Google and search ads and search optimization was the first thing that we ended up doing. And that gave us a good, uh, that gave, well, it was just me then. That gave me a good sort of three to four year runway 
And once I brought on business partners, I really just, you know, I, I brought them on because I figured they knew better than me. It was, uh, and so one of them said, we should do this thing called analytics. Okay, sounds good. So we, you know, we bought a couple of courses and then we learned it and then we did it and we got good at it. Another one said, we should do this thing called CRM. Another one, you know, so we kind of kept delving into the areas of marketing, which were a little bit ignored. And we were generally 20, 30 year olds at that point, relatively young people. And so when it came to creatives or designing that newspaper ad or that TV ad, or it came to media buying or taking the client out to, you know, a fancy dinner. We had none of that. We had no money and no flair in doing any of that. So what we could do is, hey, you have a problem. I'm going to bring a laptop. We'll fix it for you. Um, and it's, it's technology. So just stay out of my way. Let me do one, my thing. <laughs> and uh, that worked pretty well. The, the area of MarTech um, and CRM and customer experience. And fortunately for us, they grew. They became a blue ocean. And so from being... Uh, a giant in that nothing pond to being a significant player in the fairly large pond. That journey was fairly organic because we ended up making the right bets. Mm, mm, that's fascinating. It's, you know, it's such a recurring theme of people that I, that I interview and speak to as guests on the show that, you know, this, this thing about making, just making more good decisions than bad decisions is one of those fundamental recipes for success <laughs> in business. And, you know, but, but my, I guess what always runs through my head is how do we, how do we kind of get to that place where we, you know, how do we inform ourselves to make those better decisions? Um, it's, it's, and, 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 you know, if you've got the answer to that, fabulous. I certainly don't expect everyone to have the answer to that, but it's, <laughs> it's, it, you know, the, you know, I mean, we're on this eternal journey of business, right? And trying to improve and do good things. But, um, well, one of the things I am fascinated with, you know, I, I, and, and I, I certainly remember that period of 2005 and I, I was laughing with someone the other day about, you know, remember being at uni and remembering the internet coming in at, you know, 96 <laughs> and all this sort of stuff and thinking, God, I feel old now. Um, but but I'm interested in this whole MarTech space because it's evolved and just exploded so well. And and I, I see a lot of clients out there today who – I still see clients who don't even have a CRM, so Customer Relationship Management System for those who aren't uh, familiar with the acronym. But um, – and and to me, who's been around systems like this for quite some time, it's kind of a no-brainer. But I'm, I'm I'm sort of wondering, how do you guys take your clients on a journey? Because you know, especially some of these older, you know, some of them might be family businesses, a little bit set in their ways. How, how do you kind of drag them out of that sort of uh, you know '90s, early 2000s thinking and 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 bring them up to speed? Yeah. It's- you know, to be honest, I have less trouble with older businesses than I do with newer businesses. Right. Um, older businesses already have their their basis kind of settled with the essentials of marketing. They usually have some products or services. They kind of know who pays them money and who their target audience is. They might even run some sort of regular activities which give them results. So in some sense, I don't have to teach them marketing one-on-one. They know it's kind of needed. And so when they run out of things to do when it on the creative messaging or advertising and on sort of email and things, you know, then they move on to SMS. Then they think about websites. So it's a natural progression to say, okay, I want to do something new. I want to reach new audiences. So those older businesses with a little bit of aggression, it's pretty easy to show them this is where the customers are. Let's just go talk to four customers and they'll tell you where they're hanging out. And so we'll, we'll build around that, that, you know, I don't have a fixed recipe for you. We'll follow the customers. But the newer businesses... Um, I struggle with because in some ways I almost find them 
over-indexing on the new buzzwords. I meet these funded businesses now, you know, they've raised $10 million and they've got this state-of-the-art systems. They've picked up the best CRM. They've got great, uh, you know, responsive messaging on their website and apps. They've got all this fancy stuff and they're missing the fundamentals of who their target audience is. Mm. They're missing the fundamentals of why would somebody bother buying your product or engaging with you. And some of those core things, you know, which maybe you and I would have fallen in love with in marketing, the Kotler ones or watching uh, Steve Jobs unveil products and, you know, feeling that that high of this is cool. Somebody is designing a message for me. So it's a little bit of a dance, I'd say. I think for the older clients, you know, as long as we're patient and um, I've never had anybody refuse to talk to end customers or look at data and, you know, kind of turn it down. They're they're very well versed in being agile and moving with the times. Uh, but somehow the newer businesses maybe get a little bit cocky and overconfident. And for them, I would say, you know, let's go down to the basics and then listen to the customers and the rest will follow, whether it's smart tech or it's creative or it's whatever platform, all of that is just secondary to the customer's needs. Yeah, that's that's a great insight. Um, you know, I had another conversation the other day. We, we were talking about all these new companies running around, techs and tech companies, but a lot of them, and uh, raising capital. And and one of my clients, you know, guests, sorry, was saying to me, yeah, I was at this event and everybody was running around saying, so how much have you raised? How much have you raised? And he's like, I think everyone's <laughs> missing the point. Like, aren't we here to actually make money, just not like try to borrow or, you know, have people give us money? It's just a, like we actually have to have a business at the end of all this, not a, not a charity. It's a, it's a, It's such a crazy world at the moment in terms of, you know, investments and where, what seems to attract capital anyway? Yeah. And it, you know, I don't know if I don't have anybody in my family or friend circle who ran a business before I did. Um, and I studied computer science and university and entrepreneurship, a couple of modules. So I knew nothing about business when I got in. And when I got in, I realized it is not a, it's not easy to be a good person in business because there is just so much crap around. For example, this whole concept of raising money. It's essentially borrowing money without a promise to return the money. Mm. Man, I wouldn't do that with my neighbors in a personal capacity. You know, I might have some logic that if I, if I buy a new lawnmower, our neighborhood's going to look better, but I'm not going to borrow money from a neighbor to do that. But when it comes to business, people just shamelessly raise money and behind closed doors, you and I know they have no confidence of ever being able to return it. They're just yeah. going to shoot their shot and see what happens um, and so some of sort of the business principles really shocked me in my business journey. And I decided kind of early on that I'm not going to follow this fundraising path. I'm going to run a profitable business. The money's going to go back to the founders and the employees. We're going to lead a great life. As it turned out, we, we, we got bought. But even before that, we were very comfortable because we designed and grew a profitable business. And all of us could have done this for 30 more years. Yeah. I think that's fabulous. I actually think that's part of what attracts buyers is not not necessarily just the profitability aspect because I think that's fairly obvious, but but seeing a business that's performing well, that people enjoy doing what they're doing, they deliver good value to customers, people are proud of it, and and I think that's that certainly from many many uh, buyers that I've dealt with over the years, you know that's that's something that. Um, I was about to say money can't buy, but clearly you can buy it. But you know, they can't just you can't just go into a store and say, "Give me a fabulous culture." Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you ten grand. Um, so it's yeah, no, congratulations on getting it to that point. One of the things I'm curious about, um, you, you held your business so Happy Marketing you ran for quite some time there. Um, 
did you did you think when you started it in those early days that that you would build this business to a point where it a could be sold or that you might want to sell it? You know, to be honest, so funny story. We sold the business in Feb of 2019, and in April of 2019, after sort of the the press died down, uh, my wife, my baby, and I we took a vacation to New Zealand. Lovely. And uh, I was, I thought I was having a good time. And my wife kind of took me aside on day four and she said, you're being an absolute dick. You're being grumpy and snappy and you're not being nice to it at all, nice to us at all. And I kind of thought about it and I realized the conversation in my head was not of a victor that I, I sold a business. It was a little bit of a loser. Like I couldn't run this business till I was 70. And so my mental frame was never really to sell the business. I think my business partners were curious about it. And so we played the game. We got a couple of valuations and then one of them seemed like a good fit. But it honestly took me a very long time after selling the business to realize that, um, to accept that this wasn't what I'd originally set out to do. And so it didn't actually feel like a victory. Now, of course, I would do it all over again and, you know, cannot complain about the money and the lessons learned. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the, the next phase, as you know, you speak to so many founders, it's day zero again of maybe yeah. a 10 year journey to learn how to be a, a non-founding CEO. Um, mm. And I'm still going through that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I and I and there's so much around the personal and emotional side of things that um, that comes into play and how how a founder can prepare perhaps for something like that. Um, and so I'd like to I'd like to explore that a little more if I can. But before I do, I'd, 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 you know, if I come back to the the kind of mindset, I guess. So you, you clearly had a, a thought that or a framework that said building a business and running it for life was was defined that was a def- definition of success is that is that a fair comment i think so and i think there's a little bit of a derogatory tone to it they were called lifestyle businesses and i didn't like it when people referred to it as that um, but to anybody who's running a lifestyle business i ran one and then it naturally grew and i got better at running it and it, it turned out you know if a sales what you want we got there in the end so yeah. that that was kind of my approach um, and you know that led me to new places i wouldn't have thought possible yeah, yeah. Well, can I ask what what is it about the lifestyle? I'm curious because I've I've had thoughts about this stuff myself. But what what was it? What is it about the lifestyle business aspect that kind of made you uncomfortable? Um, so when I started up, you know, actually, all of my classmates from university were getting fairly juicy job offers. You know, fly around the world, um, get paid well, that sort of a thing, and. Like I kind of knew I'm going to be a little bit of a misfit in that world. I, I just couldn't imagine putting a suit on and going to work in the morning or sitting in a back office or whatever that job was offering. Mm. And you asked a question earlier about what allows people to know when to make a decision or the right decision. Yep. I don't think it's a, it's a gift. I think it's a skill that builds up over time. So for me, maybe at a slightly younger age, I had at some point decided I want to study a certain topic, even though it's not acceptable in my circles or my teachers or my, um, I, I knew I wanted to go to school in Singapore, where maybe even the cool thing was to do, was to show up in the US and go to one of those schools. Um, you know, the cool thing would have been to study a computer science and get a good job, but I felt like I had to pull the trigger on it. Um, so, you know, for me, actually lifestyle was a little bit of a relief. So when I figured that I could do this from my bedroom or a coffee shop, that felt good. And I did not want to do it from an office. 
um what i didn't like was everybody else looking at me with the kind of disappointing eyes and saying ah oh, you know couldn't make judgment. it probably couldn't yeah, get a job yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and that's and that's what i was getting to here right is that i think i think people throw this word lifestyle around and 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 it's almost for some people it's almost like they think that a that's a oh it's like it's not a serious business or you're never going to grow it or you're not going to do it. And, it, and it's quite amusing because I've had clients who run what I would call a lifestyle business and they take home a lot more money than many of the people I know in the corporate world. Um, you know, and you sort of think, well, you know, it's just that they've chosen not to grow it anymore because they just don't want to. Um, and, and to that, I think, I think that's fabulous that people actually know what they want and they're just happy to, you know, they're happy. I mean, that's yeah, really yeah. the end of it. And I don't know if anybody really knows what they want eventually. but with a little bit of courage if you could take that call on what i want tomorrow you know then tomorrow is a good day and then i'll be in a better place to take a decision on that so it's just a series of cascading decisions which uh, you know my favorite thing to read is the road less taken by robert mm-hmm. frost and yes. uh, you know that, that that diagram is in my head where every day it's just decision points and neither of them is perfect and you don't know what lies ahead so just pick yeah. the one which seems less taken and it'll be more fun and we'll see what happens Yeah, go for the adventure. Um so out of interest, um Happy Marketer by the time you sold, ha- how many shareholders were were there in the business? There were two main shareholders and then at the point of selling, we also gave some uh, some stock options and some incentives for the next layer management team. Yeah, okay. So the, so you and one business partner held the majority of shares, I presume? we did although it wasn't always so during the 15 years i was maybe a constant and then a few business partners had come and gone and yeah. obviously nobody teaches you about how to do a business divorce and they were all stressful <laughs> and friendships broken but it's something a business has to go through yeah yeah look it's it's um i, I certainly think it's something that Well, look, I mean, I think it's things you can prepare for, but there as you said before, there's always things that are unexpected and and imperfect. But um so I'm interested in um by the time you got towards the end of that phase and you're selling, can I ask what your shareholding was? Yeah, mine was a majority. It was uh, over 50% and then my okay. partner was a bit lesser. He was in the business for about 2/3 of the time I was. Right, okay. And I, and I asked that because it's it, it it's just interesting as they you know you move to this pivotal juncture in a business's journey and and sometimes business owners um can have very very different perspectives on what is the right course of action um and and i think okay if you've got a majority of shares i think somewhere in the back of our minds that there's a that's a comforting factor and and so it should be but um uh, uh, sometimes that can be a source of great great friction that whole decision point can i ask you how you went about these discussions with your other shareholders like how did this you know you mentioned a few valuations but i'm i'm curious as to how the the idea of selling came up was everybody all for it we all on the same page was there any kind of different views or just just curious about that engagement yeah yeah um so yeah sort of zooming out um one thing i i decided to do at about the 10 year mark of the business is decided that that I'm not as good of a hustler as my business partners are. Mm-hmm. Each of them were better than me in some regard. Now I was good at some areas, maybe, you know, strategic thinking or some sort of solutions or stuff like that, but the CEO job I figured needs to be a rolling um responsibility. And okay. so by the time we got into acquisition um sort of murky waters, we had already come up with a succession plan. 
my business partner was due to take over as CEO and me take a back seat. And actually, I, I, I was going to have my first child. And so I figured, you know, I might even take a couple of years off and, and be full time daddy and see what happens. Um, so that's not something every business has. But I had that comfort factor where the next CEO and maybe a CEO after that was figured out. Um, right. These folks that I work with knew that they were in line and they were thinking ahead for years. And so I actually did not want to sell, but they were curious about it. And so one of the partners was very aggressive. He's a, he's a big hustler and he would always bring me news of this acquisition, this shareholding pattern, this plot. <laughs> and so I said, okay, cool. You want to explore it? Let's play the game. Um, and then, uh, you know, people got introduced and some offers came just as friends, uh, introducing friends who are in acquiring companies. And then we also got an investment banking team to help us out. And they actually reached out to potential acquirers. Uh, but all of this kind of began with us internally just saying somebody having a, a strong motivation to say, let's explore this, let's figure it out. And somebody else, which was me saying, sure, let's play the game. Um, it's just another big sale. So we'll figure it out. Uh, and then once we were open to it, you know, friends were very helpful and they would kind of introduce people and the word um, just sort of spread in our close circle. Mm, mm, that's that's interesting, um, and, and it raises more questions for me, which is, uh, <laughs> which is what I love about this job. <laughs> um, I'm curious with the succession piece to start with. Is you know this idea of rolling CEOs, I, I find really interesting, and it's um, you know what a way. To, I mean, I think big corporates do this naturally. They don't necessarily say they're going to do it, but you know, I think the average tenure of global CEOs these days is about three and a half years. Um, so I'm just curious, you guys obviously had this idea, it was sort of in your DNA, if the fabric of your business, but how, what did that succession process look like? You know, did, did it, did you have a particular plan around it? Was, did you give a certain time frame for transitioning? Was the, or, or was it kind of fairly informal? It was fairly informal and it was quite emotional. Um, and so we just had an understanding that says, I want to become chairman and maybe full-time daddy. And that means the business can't be that dependent on me anymore. So are you ready to take on CEO? And, you know, one day I'm going to come to you and say, I'm done. Uh, and then you push me off as chairman. And then, uh, you know, I sit in the other office with a different team. Yep. Uh, and yeah, it was very emotional. It was not a formal document. Um, we did not have it affect mostly our equity or shareholding. Um, over time, it would have, but I think we were just very good friends and we could just say, you run this and then when you're tired, I'm going to come back and I'm going to run this or, you know, we'll have a third person take over and that's probably the best option. Mm. Mm. Did, did you guys have a shareholders agreement through through this period as well? We did have one which maybe our first corporate secretary drew up and it, it is absolute rubbish. It's, it's the generic <laughs> stuff that I definitely don't understand. So no. we never really sat down and discussed terms uh, but when partners would come in and out, that's the point we would sit down and say, okay, now for the next three to four years, this is the operating structure. I'm going to bring this value. You're going to bring that value. Um, so I, I read a really good book called Slicing Pie, which is all about dynamic equity allocation. And my takeaway was got to imagine the business as sort of a 10 to 12 year life cycle. And each two to three year phase of the business should have a certain amount of equity allocated to it. So whoever plays the roles in those periods should get a piece of the pie. And so if you manage to last through the entire 10 to 12 years, naturally you'll gain a big piece of it. If you mm -hmm. just come in and join a little portion of it, maybe just scaling up or just starting up, then you'll get something appropriate to that. And so 
uh, you know, I think the book is more complex than that. But my simplistic takeaway with the partners was let's think through the next few years and then we'll renegotiate in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's just kind of very organic in its in the way it's sort of evolved. Yeah, I guess the key thing is just friendships, right? I mean, we got to go to work. I, I see these people more than I see my family. Yeah. Um, so I think the most important thing was, can I hang out with you? Can we build something together? Um, and then when things get bad, we'll tackle it to the best of our ability. It probably won't be cordial, <laughs> you know, but we'll try. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Fast forwarding again, um, you guys, you're out there, you're starting to talk to buyers and, and no, no doubt the thing feels like it's got some momentum at that point. How did you, what sort of methodologies or ways did you go about valuing the business? Like how did you put a number on it? Yeah, we had no idea. And we'd gone through this process a couple of years prior when one of the business partners wanted to leave. So my, my first co-founder who I brought on four years into the business Five years later, he kind of looked at the business and said, this is growing too big for me. Like, I, I like running a smaller shop where I know everything that's going on. And, you know, now we're hiring employees whose names I don't remember in the second week. And that's <laughs> a little bit uncomfortable for me. Yep. Um, and it was very difficult because we had never valued the business at that point. We just said to ourselves, we're going to be awesome. Good job, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, of course, meant our values in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, just, you know, some <laughs> irrational number and a ridiculous multiple of a non-existent base. Um, <laughs> during that divorce, we actually had a lawyer come in and explain to us the basics of how you might value such a business. And in our industry, which was marketing services, they told us probably the most common way to do this is an EBITDA multiple. And so you take your profits or EBITDA for a couple of years and average them out. And then you take a market multiple. Um, and then that's the value of your business and each of your shareholding, which is, you know, one one maybe to most of the listeners. But mm. I promise you this, 10 years into the business, I did not know how a business is valued. <laughs> yeah. And so through a lawyer is kind of how we figured the basics. Of course, none of us like the outcome of that because yeah. I, that means the shareholders who survive have to pay money they don't have to a, another shareholder who's extremely unhappy with the methodology. Uh, so, but that's the process we went through. So at least at that point through that divorce, we knew that it's the valuations are multiple of something. So pick a multiple, pick a base, and that's how you get it. And uh, later on, when we got good interest from one acquirer, we went to an investment bank. Um, and then they kind of took us through, here are some models you're likely to encounter. Here's yeah. a EBIT multiple. In your industry, it's unlikely to be a revenue multiple. And people might buy you outright, or they might buy you with some, uh, you know, revaluation at different points in time, or they might buy shares every couple of years. And so... They they took that basic formula of something into something, and then they broke it down into different ways one might swap equity. Mm. That's interesting. So, out of curiosity, the lawyer what what did he say was a typical multiple of of EBITDA? Um, he is very diplomatic, and he refused to say it. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of had to guess. So what we did is we went looking out into the public markets, and at that point, I think companies were trading in our industry at something like 10 to 12 of EBITDA. Really? 10 to 12 times EBITDA? Yeah, our industry wow. is not valued very well. Um, and so we took that and then we, we took that number and we said, I don't think we can afford to pay you 10 to 12. <laughs> so well, well, 10 to 12, I mean, from, from my world, is that's extraordinarily high. Is that I mean, high? We, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like we see, we see a lot of... Um, 
we've seen some marketing services businesses and okay, I've, you know, it's not all apples and apples and whatnot, but, um, you know, seeing multiples of three and four and, you know, five, you know, have, I've certainly yeah. seen transactions out there in those ranges of, of EBITDA. Um, but yeah, um, and I guess it, it depends a lot on whether we're, it's commoditized or it's unique and how badly buyers want that asset. Yeah, and how much uh, tech's behind it and recurring revenues and all this sort of stuff. I mean, there's always a lot to this stuff, but it's, um, but it, yeah, look, anyway, it is, it, I'm just always fascinated with, with, um, with A, the advice people get, but also where they transact, right? It's, um, yeah, that's, yeah, and that's I like Singapore is a very, very uh, tax-friendly location. So yeah. that was never really a concern. Whatever we did in Excel, we figured we will get paid that amount because we, we didn't have long-term capital gains. But that's a concern for people dealing in, in, in a different market. So sure. we started from 10 to 12, and then we said, we can't afford to pay you that. And so in the end, for that first partner, we told them we can pay you half that, and it'll take us two years of taking no salary to pay you that amount. Yes. And of course, he didn't like it, but this is all we could afford to pay. And it, he, in the end, he decided it's better for him to get paid something eventually than to stay in a, you know, a troubled relationship. And so that's what we did. We took like a 6X multiple and then we paid him over two years and we skipped our salaries and, you know, our spouses kind of supported us in that time. Wow. I mean, that's a big move, right? I mean, I think it's, you know, I think anytime you're having to sort of take personal sacrifices like that um, can certainly be scary. I mean, perhaps your spouses were fine in their jobs and that's all good, but geez, it's a, that's a big commitment. Yeah, I mean, one of my early rules in life, I figured when I started the business was I don't know how to make money. So, but I did, I did see someone on stage that said, if you survive in business for 20 years, you're going to be fine. I don't know anybody who's been in business for 20 years and they're poor. So just, just find a way and survive. So very early on, I lowered my standard to Maggie noodles and eggs and a couple of vegetables thrown in together <laughs> for every meal. And I and said, an egg. you know, you've got to throw an egg in there, right? I mean, that's an egg. the way. Yeah, yeah. Protein, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, 20 years is too long, but if I can do this for 10 years through most of my twenties, I'm sure I'm going to figure it out. So I had very low yeah. burn rate in that sense. You know, we lived in public housing, basically shared rooms. My, my, my wife and I lived in a shared apartment for a very long time. And so we, you know, we had very low standards for what it would take to be happy. And that allowed us and gave us the breathing room to actually invest in the business and see the returns later. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. It's, um, I, I love hearing stories of how people kind of overcome all these challenges in business. It's, um, it's, it's awesome. Um, so um, how, how big was the business by the time you sold it in terms of revenue? Uh, we were over 10 mil in revenue yep. and uh, nice. fairly well above average profitability. I can't get into specific numbers, but uh, of course, yeah. two to three X of what a typical competitor would do in terms of profits. Fabulous. Well, no, no wonder um, you were an attractive target. And so, um, and and I can see from your profile anyway. Mer so Merkel was the the acquirer. Yeah. So Merkel is one of the businesses in the holding group called Denso. Um, there. Other, other names in that industry are WPP and Publicis and Omnicon. And then Sue's the Japanese one, the only Asian one. And they had acquired this American business called Merkel. And Merkel had very little presence in uh, APAC and almost nothing in Southeast Asia. And so we were meant to be that flagship acquisition, which really helped with the strategic fit. It, it wasn't as much a financial decision. It always is for the holding group. But for the folks at Merkel, it was existential. If they didn't find the right team, they would never be able to grow in that market. And that that felt more like money 
like we'd, we'd come together and do a mission and they'd also been through their acquisition. And so they knew what challenges there would be with integration. And hopefully that'll make things smoother for us. Yeah, interesting. Tell me a little bit about the process. I mean, I, I think it's most people, um, if they ever sell a business, only do it once. And, and it's almost like it's a little bit of the the big, the great unknown. Um, how long from from the time that your business partner started talking about selling and maybe entertaining a few initial discussions, how long did it take from that point to going all the way through finding the right buyer, due diligence, contracts, settlement, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So the first bit of the process was exploration, where I met somebody from Merkel who was heading APAC and very keen on on doing something together. And then at the same time, my partner and I started talking about being open to this. That process was about seven to eight months long. So we took a sweet time with it, just getting ready for it. And at that point, we decided if we're going to sell, it's probably only once in our lifetime and we should get some professional help. So we went out and we spoke to a few investment bankers and not everybody will work with a relatively smallish business like us. So we found, you know, one that we were comfortable with. And then they went shopping for us for about a four month period. So they, they helped negotiate some sort of a deal structure with Merkel and Dentsu. And uh, they also had their other contacts who were on the lookout and they sent our profile over. And so we got to the stage where we had a few different offers under confidentiality. And uh, we picked one and that's the LOI stage. Um, and so we picked one uh, about four or five months later. We had about a two to three month due diligence period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at this point, we're about a year and a half into the process. We've gone through the yeah. initial bit. And and so then the final contract negotiations took a few more months. So all in all, about a year and a half to two years for us, which is slightly on the longish side, I think. But for someone like us who intended to run it for a long time, that was just the time we needed to be emotionally ready for it. Yeah. Look, I, and and for what it's worth, I mean, and thank you for sharing that, by the way. Um, for what it's worth, I perhaps perhaps a little on the longish side, but not out of actually the realm of what what is quite common. Um, I, I would I would argue um, we've we've certainly had deals that have taken a year and a half and a little bit longer than that. So, um, of, of course, everybody likes to do it fairly quickly once they've made a decision. But um, but there's there's so many moving parts and variables and you know, I think people kind of sometimes overlook how many things need to line up to make a, the timing work on some of these things. So, um, so I guess the message for anyone listening to this is that if you're thinking you might want to sell your business one day, you really should be looking at this at least sort of two years out and starting to think about how to prep and, and get ready. And this is when things work out the first time. I yeah. have many friends who've gone through two or three of them and then at the end, one of the parties doesn't want it anymore. Maybe it's been too bitter or the numbers don't make sense anymore or something's changed in the global climate and the buyer doesn't want to pay anymore. Mm. So, you know, I've had friends and seven or eight year journeys. And so, I, you know, my thinking is I got to be ready to run the business. Can't take my eyes off the ball. If this happens, fantastic, but it might not. And we still got to run the business. Yeah. That's, uh, Ratchet, that's a really interesting point you mentioned with your friends. I've had um, clients who've come to us at Exit Advisory Group. I've, I've had guests on this show who have explained this experience where, you know, they're traveling along, they're running their business, they're doing well, they're not looking to sell. They get the this fabulous tap on the shoulder of, are you interested in selling? And and everything's all roses and they lovely relationship. And they go down this path with this particular company exploring this opportunity. And for whatever reason, 
you know, nine, 12 months later, the deal falls over. And this sense of loss and frustration and wasted time and resource, et cetera, is, is obvious. Um, any, anybody who invests anything in, um, you know, that amount of time in any project that doesn't work is going to feel disappointed. My question to you is, and I don't know if any of your friends went through that, but I, it, this is such a common phenomenon. And I'm just curious as to your thoughts about how important it was to ha- run a process, have that advisor, bring multiple parties in. And, and by the sounds of what they did, it sounds like they ran quite a good process. Yeah. I mean, the environment when we got into this, we did not know a single successful acquisition. Wow. We, maybe we had spoken to five to seven people who had sold marketing business in Singapore. Every single one of them was frustrated a few years later. They had left the business. They had not achieved the numbers they were supposed to achieve. A lot of the money was hanging on the back end. And so we got into this environment kind of believing that things go to shit anyway. Like it happens. And so that's probably what's going to happen. So we got to make sure our day one is good enough so that we don't live life with regrets. Um, and that was a very important principle for us. And so, you know, there's, there's two things. Too. One is deals fall apart. Um, people could be negotiating in good faith, but things change. Or in the old days, people did used to negotiate in bad faith, you know, bring you yeah. in in the final boardroom meeting and drop the price. And I, I know those stories uh, happened a lot. And then yeah, even when, when deals all happen well and we're happy together, Four years later, that's not always the case. So I think in our head, we knew that things can fall apart at any time. And so we got to make sure that we have to be ready for that. Um, I I know cases where people had to buy back their businesses and you don't want to buy back a dying asset. So that's why the succession plan was super handy because I had the team ready to run the business and I could focus 100% on the acquisition, which is a full-time job on its own. And if I didn't have that succession plan and those partners ready to go, we would have dived um, during that process and not being ready for another one for another five years. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really critical point you just, I think, mentioned there about you being basically in a full-time job managing the transaction because I've seen where people try to do that plus their daytime job and inevitably the business suffers and that is the absolute worst time to see your numbers starting to drop or send in a negative trend, right? Yeah. I mean, I tell you the benefits of this approach from the initial numbers we promised our acquirer maybe in uh, May or June of the year to December, we doubled our profits for the year. Oh, fabulous. Because I was on a full-time job just focusing on the weekly numbers and making sure we do a good job. And that gave great direction to the operational team. Mm. And uh, in fact, me getting out of the business was great for everyone else. They felt free. They closed the deals they wanted to close. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, me getting out of the way was actually super beneficial for everybody involved. Yeah, that's fabulous. Um, I'm curious. We, we had a client, we've had a few clients actually in this situation, which is wonderful. Um, we, but we've had a few clients who've done what you did. They they started the the discussions, the negotiations. We're on a process, and and we've agreed with a buyer in principle what what a, a valuation methodology was, and and that multiple of EBIT, EBITDA is certainly the most common. Um, in one particular case, we we had agreed on a, a multiple. It was about four and a half times EBITDA, and then during the process, and it was about a an eight month process, their numbers just kept going up. And so the beauty of that, of course, was well, the formula is what the formula is. And by the time we got to the end game and we shut off the balks, their position had grown significantly. Um, of course, I've seen it go the other way, <laughs> and and I've also seen deals where people agreed on an absolute number at the beginning 
and then felt frustrated because the numbers went up or the buyers felt started feeling frustrated because the numbers went down. So uh, did, did you guys have any, like, did you have an agreed process or methodology? Did it, did it move or swing? Like, yeah. how did that kind of unfold? We agreed on a number based on the projections, but mm-hmm. we explicitly said we want a better number if we do better along the same lines without laying out the full formula. Yeah. And we kept them in the loop as the numbers kind of kept going up because the DD was happening anyway. Yep. Um, but I don't think they knew the extent of how much better it was going to be. So it was a challenge for them at the end to cough up, you know, with their bankers or funding sources, that extra amount of money. Um, but I don't think anybody loses. Like if we do better numbers and they don't want to do the deal, there will be somebody else 12 months later who'll do a deal on the higher numbers. And if we do worse, you just walk away at the end. I mean, yeah. there's a minimum amount of money you need for 10, 15 years of running a business. And uh, I, I'm assuming everybody will understand if you have to walk away because the business performance dipped and you couldn't sell at that point in time. So that was a little bit hard because we run the business for our employees, like being good people. But during this process, we have to be a little bit selfish and like figure out this is a once in a lifetime event for the shareholders. And yeah, just reminding ourselves that and being okay, we don't have to sell like till the last day, till we go in for signing, we don't have to sell. Um, that helped us just feel independent and not pushed mm. into the process. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I mean, I think state of mind speaks a lot to your negotiating position as well. Um, I, I imagine running the business you ran, you know, that you were you had a great culture, the business is growing, it's, you enjoyed doing what you're doing, you, had a, you, know, you were happy doing what you're doing. And I, I imagine that's a wonderful position to be in going into negotiations because I guess if it all doesn't work out, well, hey, I was actually happy already. So um, did, did, did that play, was that in the back of your mind as you went through all this? Yeah, I mean, you know, happy is in the name. We, yeah. we, that's the only thing we had to be. Profitable is a nice one and we got there at the end and sold is a really rarity. It, sometimes it happens and it doesn't, but happy is really key. And I think my proudest moment, probably one, there's an industry publication out of Australia called Mumbrella that covers our industry. And we won the award for best culture. And yeah. we had won awards before for, you know, marketing, but that one felt like fruition, like all the sacrifices we had made um, kind of worked out. So yeah, I, you know, we were already happy and there's a little bit of confidence in a growing blue ocean. Like looking at our numbers, we knew that even if a global recession hits, we'll probably just plateau. Yeah, if it doesn't yeah. hit, um, we will keep growing and there'll be another buyer, another buyer. And I, I realized this because some of the buyers we reached out to, they said, you're too small. Come back mm. in five years. And we said, yeah. okay, we will. Um, so <laughs> nice. that felt good uh, that we could do it at a later date as well. Yeah. Awesome. Rashid, I'm, I'm, cognizant of of time i could chat to you all day um but um i'd like to put you on the spot in a second and ask you if if maybe you have one you know tip for your fellow entrepreneurs and business owners out there who are who are still on their journey but before i do that i mean are are you happy for people to reach out to you and connect with you and um you know make contact in some way absolutely um i'm on linkedin uh rachit r-a-c-h-i-t dayal d-a-y-a-l and I'm starting to put out some YouTube videos by the time this podcast comes out. And I'm talking about maybe some of the more in-depth stuff around business scaling and growth and operations and uh, maybe transaction as well. And, you know, so, yeah, reach out and let me know what you're curious about. Um, and I'm happy to talk in private if you're in a deal or, you know, if you just like some lessons, very happy to work on that together. 
Absolutely. That's fantastic. And look, we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile and everything in the show notes here. But, um, you know, f- for, for somebody who's got such vast experience in the marketing space and, and so much knowledge, um, I mean, as I said, I could talk to you all day. So um, I'm really appreciative of your time and I'm thank you for sharing your story with us. It's um, It's been, uh, I think there'll be a lot of people out there who'll get a lot of value out of it. So um, so thank you. Same here. I I'm glad you're doing this podcast because I felt pretty lonely until I started hearing some of the conversations you were having and start seeing the common thread. So appreciate it. Thank you very much. No, that's awesome. So before we go, is, th- is there perhaps one parting uh, tip or a piece of advice you'd share with your fellow entrepreneurs? I'd say my takeaway has been it's possible for good guys and gals to finish first. Um, the world of business doesn't make it easy. It's easier to maybe stiff your employees off that bonus or let them go when things get bad. It's easier to maybe cut corners in some of the product features or delivery features. And the advice you might get from other entrepreneurs, the business community is just do what's right for the business and the profits today. But that's not necessarily right for you in the long term because you have to live with the weight of all of those decisions. Um, So I'd say, you know, a business is just employees. It's people building something together and uh, be good to those people no matter what happens outside you know protect them they'll go through stuff and you'll go through stuff and we'll be around to kind of cheer each other up and i think if you've got that going you'll be fine eventually maybe five years maybe 15 years but you'll all be fine yeah i think that's great advice you know i think it was richard branson who said you know that that whole thing of customers come first he said that's rubbish your your employees come first if you look after your employees they'll take care of your customers exactly yeah (laughs) rashid thanks again for coming on the show thank you simon The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.